Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, ko William Rayaho. Welcome to Black Sheep. To be honest, I'm kind of astonished that the story we're going to talk about today is one I only just found out about recently. It seems like the kind of event which should have gone down in New Zealand history, like the Rainbow Warrior or the Underarm Bowling Incident. Just like those events, this is a story which happened so recently that most of the people involved are still around. It's the story of an attempted regicide. October 14th, 1981. Queen Elizabeth is visiting Dunedin as part of a week-long tour of New Zealand. Garth Simpson and some of his workmates had taken a break to come out and watch her drive by. So we, we were standing there leaning against the car and then the, you know, the, we could see the, the car coming just around the curve mm. and with the flag on it and all that, so we give a wave and all that. But what I do remember about that also, that part of it, was that she never waved back, which was annoying because we were the only ones there. The Royal Motorcade stops just outside Otago Museum Reserve. The door opens and Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II steps out onto the pavement. A crowd of about three and a half thousand people is waiting to greet her. I heard this rifle shot. And it was clearly a rifle shot. And it came from over my right shoulder. At this moment, you might expect a panic to break out. Police to tackle the Queen to the ground. The crowd to start screaming and running. But... In reality, none of that happens. The royal entourage or the media press pack that followed the Queen went up to police and said, was that a shot, was that a shot? Police downplayed it. They said, no, it wasn't. It was a council sign falling over. A few reporters sniffed around, couldn't find anything. No one was charged. Story went cold. It wasn't until a week later that the police realised that, in fact, someone really did take a shot at the Queen. Or at least he might have. It's a complicated story, but then again, Chris Lewis was a complicated guy. I mean, he was clearly a smart person, potentially a brilliant person, but he was just drawn to that dark side. And I guess history is littered with these sort of characters that um, did want a piece of somebody else's fame and to be infamous themselves. Uh, the Lee Harvey Oswalds, the Mark David Chapmans, those sort of people. This is Stuff.co.nz journalist Hamish McNeely. He wrote a series of articles about Chris Lewis earlier this year under the headline The Snowman and the Queen. I highly recommend you go and read them. There's a link attached to the show. Hamish was kind enough to talk to me for this podcast. He also gave me the recorded interviews he did with witnesses like Garth and with people who knew Chris Lewis. And based on those interviews, it sounds like Chris could be a scary person to know. Imagine this. Like, I don't know if you come across the story where he... Uh used a lasso to catch his next door neighbour who was a she was a bit younger than him and then started hanging her on the on the 
against the fence and trying to pull her up the fence until her brother came and, and um, removed him and basically saved his sister. By, by the neck, sorry? Yep, by the neck, yep. Jesus, okay. So this was before, this was before, he, before I knew him. And I could imagine just a bemused look on his face as he was doing it, you know. That's Paul Tane. He was a good friend of Chris Lewis during his childhood. As you might have guessed from that story, it was a fairly troubled one. Chris described his childhood in a memoir entitled Last Words, which was published after his death in 1997. Yes, he wrote a memoir. We'll come back to that a bit later on. He talks about being um, expelled from kindergarten after a game of King of the Slide, which went wrong, pushing another child off the slide. Um, I'm sure there's probably more to it. Expelled from primary school, I think it was Anderson Bay, and then on to high school, which he claimed he had the most canings at Otago Boys at the time. I'm sure that was quite a record to break. You spoke to his mother at one stage who said that he had actually been diagnosed with a, some kind of mental disorder in his preteens. Yes, and I have seen some documents uh, raising some concerns about that early on in his life. There's early reports of him going through huge uh, hormonal bursts and struggling to deal with that. But I, I'm not really sure how much credence we can put into that. Clearly there was some sort of psychological thing going on in his life early on. Chris Lewis only seemed to become more sinister as he reached his teenage years. Paul Tane told Hamish that Chris was drawn to the stories of famous criminals like Ned Kelly and Charles Manson. kind of liked his ideas and thought some of the things he did were should we say in Chris's way, funny? I, th- I think you mentioned Hitler as well, was another one. Yeah, he liked Hitler's ideas. He thought cleaning up the world's people was probably... I don't, he had no regard for human life. He could be cruel, I guess. Yeah, and you saw that but, firsthand with how he treated animals, right? Um, yeah, some people used to, like... He, he uh, kind of stood out to people. He had a kitten and he used to stick pins in it just for fun. I mean, when I was younger, I kind of didn't really care, but as I got a bit older and, and um, I had a few, plenty of issues as a kid myself, and uh, as I got older, I kind of like stepped back from quite a long way. Even when we were, even at high school, when we were going through all that crazy stuff and, and breaking into places and setting things on fire and. Even all through that, you know, it was sort of like I've sort of seen a, a much, much darker side of him there. As Paul mentioned there, in their late teens, he and Chris got involved in crime. Together with a third friend, they formed a sort of gang. They called it the National Imperial Guerrilla Army, NIGA for short with all its clever implications. Initially, the gang was involved in the normal kind of crime you'd expect from three teenagers with troubled backgrounds. Throughout 1981, they burgled homes and businesses, set fires, and sent this handwritten letter to the police, threatening more serious crimes. National Imperial Guerrilla Army claims responsibility for four burglaries and break-ins and safe-cracking. We will continue to steal, rob, or even kill, unless the Springbok team leaves New Zealand. We also claim responsibility for breaking into schools over the weekend and tonight will again set fire to two places in Dunedin and another burglary. And on the 12th of October, we will then kill 10 people. That mention of the Springboks might have sprung out at you. 
The South African rugby team were just finishing their highly controversial tour of New Zealand at the time that letter was sent. This was the scene at Auckland's Eden Park just a couple of days later. First half and down on the left-hand end of the ground there is a stoppage. Smoke bombs have been thrown onto Eden Park at the left-hand end of the field. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. The game will stop. But Hamish McNeely says it's unclear whether Chris Lewis actually cared much about the anti-apartheid movement. Because Christopher was um, living near the student quarter, he became actively involved, would spend a long time hanging around campus. And by all accounts, he took part in some of the protests. Of course, Dineen being a university town, reports are that he donned a helmet as a, I guess he was a 16-year-old, and went down there to to take on police. So whether he was motivated to to do so because of belief over apartheid or because he just wanted to take on police and authority, I really don't know. Uh, in, in, his, in his book, it, it, it comes across as a wee bit of both. After the tour had ended, on October 2nd, 1981, the gang broke into a gun shop and stole a large number of weapons. They'd actually already stolen guns from Chris's old high school and a sporting store. A few days later, they went to Anderson Bay Post Office and committed their first really major crime. They arranged to do the robbery in the school break. They had um, camouflage-type parkers, which they put over the top of their school uniform. They dumped their bikes around the corner. They went in there, pulled homemade balaclavas over their head. They had sawn-off shotguns, which they had um, cut down days prior in a in a quarry, I think, uh, nearby. And they burst in. They had one lookout. Uh, there was, I think there was two or three people in there, including a couple of schoolgirls, which were ushered in later on. Um, they get some cash. Um, I can't remember how much, I think five or $8,000, a fortune at the time. As Chris Lewis jumped back over the counter, his finger slipped on the trigger of his shotgun. The buckshot passed within a few centimetres of the face of a young woman who was working at the counter. And then they flee the scene. Um, two of them go back to school and, and sit a test. I think they did really, really well. Um, my understanding, they got in the 90s. might have been an English exam from memory. And then um, Christopher Lewis goes the other way, back to where he's staying in Dunedin Student Quarter. And the cops on their way to the scene, one of them crashes in his haste. Chris gets off his bike and helps push his car out of a ditch. Such a weird story. Yeah, welcome to Dunedin, you know. At first, the police had a lot of difficulty tracking down who was behind the armed robbery of the post office. That's despite them literally running into him on the way to the crime scene. And I talked to a police officer, said they weren't looking for three pimply-faced school kids. You know, when a bank gets robbed, they're looking for a hardened criminal or not... um, a couple of kids in a school uniform. It took 10 days for the police to catch up with Chris Lewis and his gang, and it was in those 10 days that Chris may or may not have attempted to shoot the Queen. Not that the police knew anything about that when they finally caught one member of the gang. Police are doing what good police do, I guess, and and doing area inquiries as to the armed robbery and going door to door. And then they come across this kid who's very nervous, is wearing a similar type camouflage jacket to what the robbers were described as wearing. Bring him into custody and soon he starts 
singing. Then um, his offside, Christopher Lewis, is named. He's brought into um, uh, the police station. They're asking him, well, where are all the weapons? We know you guys have weapons. Chris Lewis told the police that the stolen guns were buried at his flat. The police dug up the cache, but one gun was missing. A scoped twenty two caliber rifle. The police asked Chris where it is. And he's saying, well, you'll find it on the fifth floor of the Adams building, which is 300 metres away from where the Queen got out of the Rolls Royce and appeared in front of, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people and where that alleged shot happened. In an abandoned toilet block, the police found the rifle with a single spent cartridge. When they searched Chris Lewis's flat, they found newspaper clippings about the royal visit together with a hand-drawn map of the octagon with the title Operation AskQEB, which was presumably shorthand for Operation Assassinate Queen Elizabeth. Now the police case is much bigger than a teenage gang's crime spree. Now it's a case of high treason. And back in 1981, the punishment for that crime was death by hanging. Now, both Hamish McNeely and I would love to tell you exactly what Chris Lewis did and why and how close he came to actually killing the Queen. The problem is that from this point, the story gets really murky. And the fact it gets murky might be deliberate. More on that in a moment. Chris Lewis kept telling different stories to the police. At first, he said he was acting under the orders of someone he called the Snowman, an older man who Chris claimed was the leader of the NIGA. Later, he admitted the snowman was made up and that he acted alone. At points, he bragged that his bullet nearly hit the Queen, but at others, he said he didn't actually aim directly at her. He actually told the police and Paul Tane that he made multiple attempts. Yeah, this is a scary part. It is mentioned in the documents that I got that they took him around several places around Dunedin. One of them was the Octagon. I think it was a defunct job centre, um... He originally planned to get on top of the building, according to his friend, and shoot down. But instead, he was ended up by the door, apparently, uh, according to the former police officer and his friend. He told them that he had the Queen in the side. She was wearing a something like a jade hat at the time. And then two police officers in the distance walked in front, spoiling the shot. Uh, so then he went to Plan B, and that was the... Um, Adams building, so he hopped on his uh, 10-speed bike and rode off down the road and waited for the Queen to finish her official engagement at lunch and then waited for a motorcade um, about an hour later. Paul Tarnay said Chris had talked about shooting the Queen quite a lot in the lead-up to October 14th, but he was never quite sure how seriously to take him. Chris was the kind of guy to brag about all sorts of things. Remember in that letter he promised to kill 10 people? That never happened. But Paul was worried enough that he actually sabotaged the scope on Chris's rifle. It had a scope on it, but it was pointed in the wrong direction. The scope was? The scope was, yeah. He didn't, couldn't set the scope, so I made sure it was set where it wasn't going. It wasn't going where he was pointing it anyway. In the end, we never get a clear answer about what really happened on October 14th, 1981. 
Chris's own account in police interviews seems to suggest that even as he arrived at the Adams building, he didn't know what he was planning to do. Right up until this stage, it was my intention to kill the Queen by shooting her with the loaded twenty-two caliber I was carrying. At about the fifth floor, I changed my mind. My mind was in turmoil. I, I was tearing my insides out. I, I didn't know what to do. I, I was going to make a spur-of-the-moment decision if I saw her. Remember, Chris is just 17 years old when all this is happening. In the moment he pulled the trigger, we don't even know if Chris could see the Queen. We also don't know how close the bullet came to her. It was never recovered. As I said, this story gets murky, and it only gets murkier when you start looking at the investigation and prosecution of Chris Lewis. Stuff.co.nz got hold of police job sheets from 1981, which showed the authorities initially planned to charge Chris with attempted treason. For some reason, that plan was shelved, and he was only charged with possessing and discharging a firearm in a public place. The police summary of facts mentioned that the gun was fired during the Queen's visit, but not that the shot was fired just at the moment she stepped out of her car. Hamish McNeely spoke to several people who think there was a concerted effort by authorities to downplay just how close the Queen came to being killed. A lot of the bits and pieces, you'll never get a true file on that because it was reactivated, regurgitated, bits pulled off it, other false bits put on it. You know, it, <laughs> they were in damage control so many times. This is Tom Lewis, a retired Dunedin police officer who investigated and interviewed Chris Lewis. They're not related, just by the way. Tom says that at first the police were looking very seriously at charging Chris with attempted treason. He believes that plan was only abandoned due to political pressure. Tom alleges that midway through the investigation he went on leave and that when he came back, his commanding officer told him that they intended to scale back the investigation of Chris. He said, we'll never get another royal tour here, Lewis. You've got to settle down. This is bigger than you and me and all this bullshit. Um, anyway, in the end, um, I just sort of... I, just I was going to stress out over it. He told me that appropriate charges would be laid that had put him away for a long time. Tom Lewis isn't the only one who thinks there was a deliberate effort to downplay the events of October 14th. There's also Murray Hanlon, who was Chris Lewis's lawyer. I think there was, a, a from up top politically, the fact that attempted assassination of the Queen had taken place in New Zealand with a nutcase who uh, later went and said he was trying to establish a new IRA movement was just too politically uh, hot to handle. In his own memoir, Chris Lewis alluded to a cover-up, claiming that he was visited both by senior police officers from Wellington and by NZSIS agents. He claimed those agents told him that If I was ever to mention the events surrounding my interviews or the organisation or that I was in the building or that I was shooting from it that they would make sure I suffered a fate worse than death. So, was there a conspiracy to cover up just how close Queen Elizabeth came to being assassinated in Dunedin? Hamish McNeely has tried to get to the bottom of that question and his conclusion is there's no smoking gun. No smoking gun, but a gun with a spent cartridge, people that heard the bullet, and other people suggesting there was political interference, including the lawyer, the former cop, and the friend. It was certainly downplayed. I mean, a gun was certainly fired at the time she got out of the vehicle, whether Christopher Lewis aimed it at her. It's one heck of a distance. It's 300 metres. 
um, or aimed it at the road. We don't know. The bullet was never recovered. Ballistics were never done on the weapon. Uh, we don't even know where that weapon was. We haven't got photographs of the weapon. Um, some basic police work just seemingly wasn't done. By the way, just to be clear, the official position of the New Zealand police is that Chris Lewis was fully investigated at the time and that any allegations that they downplayed the events are false. The official police summary of facts says this. From their investigation, the police were satisfied that at no time could the accused have been close enough to the royal party to have been within effective range of any member of that party. And in fact, when he discharged that rifle, the royal party would not have been visible to him. Chris Lewis was sentenced to three years in prison. That was both for the firearms charges and for 15 other charges relating to the robberies and arsons he committed as part of the NIGA. He was initially held at a youth prison but was shifted to solitary confinement after an escape attempt before finally being moved to Lake Alice Psychiatric Hospital in 1983. He made a second escape attempt from that facility by holding a knife to a guard's throat. A search of his room later uncovered detailed plans to murder Prince Charles, who was touring New Zealand with Princess Diana at the time. After that incident, authorities tried to have him committed under the Mental Health Act, but that attempt failed and he was eventually released in 1985. But he didn't stay out of prison long. He spent almost all of his 20s in prison. He had a penchant for um, armed robberies, very brazen armed robberies. Often he'd, he'd be released and then he would go out and commit another crime straight away. In 1987, Chris carried out a particularly brazen crime spree, robbing a string of banks and post offices in Christchurch and Dunedin. He was hiding in Westport when he discovered the police had been tipped off about his location. He stole his landlady's Ford Telster, grabbed his pet kitten Tiger and made a run for it. Goes in the vehicle and then um, encounters a police blockade. Chris rams through the police blockade and keeps driving. And then he's going through the um, Buller Gorge in torrential rain. You can imagine it, right? And with police cars behind him, he's going at full speed. At some point in the pursuit, Chris realises he's got no chance of outrunning the police. Chris deliberately drives off the road, crashes 10 metres down the bank and comes to a stop just a few metres from the flooded Buller River. Still with his kitten in the passenger seat and um, it was a massive manhunt. They basically gave him up for, for dead by the sound of it. But he got away. He managed to survive a week in the bush. Yeah, well, the, the funny thing about Christopher, the image you have of him is a, sort of a sort of a skinny white kid, but he was always fascinated by martial arts and seemingly did a lot of training. In fact, during one of his stints out of prison, Chris actually set up a ninja training school. He claimed he had a black belt in the martial art of ninjutsu, which included things like fighting underwater, using poison darts and throwing knives. So physically, he was was apparently very imposing and um, and highly trained. Whether he was a ninja... I don't, I don't think that was the case. I think that was good bragging rights in prison. But he um, he went on the run uh, 
and he claims in his book that he got out by clinging to the underside of a bus or wedging himself in the underside of a bus that went all the way to Karamea and returning to Westport and then covered in soot, he hitchhiked hitchhiked out while the, while the police were still hunting for him in the gorge, basically giving him up for dead. It's it's almost like he watched the original Rambo movie movie or something. Yeah. It, it's got it's got that sort of element. He got out somehow. He somehow survived, got out uninjured, and ended up in Wellington. I think was later arrested in Auckland. Following that manhunt, Chris spent five years in prison. He got out in 1992, but robbed another bank just days after his release, and spent another four years in the maximum security Paremaremo prison. But. During this final stint in prison, he seemed to chill out a bit. In his book, he claimed part of this change in attitude was driven by a conversion to Buddhism. Again, in in his book, that whole love affair with Eastern religions comes through, and I guess also the martial arts, it's all entwined, isn't it? Um, Things like uh, meditation and yoga, um, he speaks very fondly of. He certainly seems to start to calm down a lot. And when he gets out, he sort of um, goes to... Kitty Kitty and practices yoga and sells herbal medicine for dogs. I mean, it's sort of like you can't imagine a bigger U-turn in, in lifestyle. It's another chapter in a, in a crazy, crazy life. In the book, he generally maintains he was trying to go clean. He was in a relatively stable relationship. You know, he was still watched on by authorities. He did a few dodgy deals. He was still drawn to that criminal element. But, you know, he seemed to have calmed down. I, I think maybe four years in Paremaremo does that to a person. That said, the police and Secret Service were still keeping a very close eye on him. When the Queen visited New Zealand again in 1995, they paid for Chris and his girlfriend to go on a 10-day holiday to Great Barrier Island, kayaking, fishing, sunbathing, all taxpayer-funded just to keep him at a safe distance from the monarch. He, he makes a mention in his book, which I always found interesting, that Maori activists, they were locked up, you know, but um, he was given this taxpayer-funded junket and it wasn't even monitored. He just had, there was one local cop over there. And then apparently the ferry service or whatever would have, to, would ring up police if he, if he ever suddenly got back. Because at the time we had Queen Elizabeth visiting for the Commonwealth heads of government meeting. We had Nelson Mandela, all these other sort of heads of state. So they were really worried. So um, it sounds like he had a really nice time <laughs> with, his, with his partner over there doing all sorts of activities. The next year, however, in 1996, Chris Lewis found himself charged with his most serious crime to date. He's accused of the murder of an Auckland woman called Tanya Ferlin. She was brutally beaten to death in front of her children. Her baby was found at a churchyard, I think, 10 kilometres away or something like that. The police had nothing to go on. They had absolutely nothing. And then, unrelated to that, another person was picked up on a drug charge. He said to police he made an offer that uh, gave them a lead, I guess, and fingered his former cellmate or former prison mate as the person who did it, um, something that Christopher Lewis has always denied. He, he readily admits to doing all the crimes that he's ever been charged for, um, but this one he maintains he didn't do. The man who accused Chris Lewis was called Travis Burns, but there are a couple of problems with Travis's testimony. For one thing, the police paid him $30,000 for fingering Chris. For another, a few years later, Travis was convicted of murdering another woman in almost exactly the same way Tanya Ferlin was killed. 
Also, Chris's former girlfriend maintains that she was with Chris on the night of the murder. The only evidence linking Chris to the killing was Travis Byrne's testimony and a bloody shoe print at the crime scene, which matched a pair of running shoes Chris owned. Chris was charged with the murder, and while he was in prison awaiting trial, he began writing his memoir. You read it, and, and there's threads that lead up to this, the murder and his being charged all throughout the book. It's almost like it's saying, look, I've done this, these bad things in my life, but this I didn't do. The whole book reads like Chris is building towards an alibi, you know, saying he's not a violent guy like this, this is not his MO, and he he feels quite passionate about it, and so passionate that when the publisher said, look, we can't publish this book, your case is before the courts, three days later, um, Christopher Lewis kills himself in prison. It is just such a strange series of events isn't it i mean he just i mean he would he would have all he would have had to do is wait for this to, for this whole story to come out but he just i don't know yeah you you think he'd wait for his day in court but i guess he always felt like um the authorities particularly the police were against him and there's possibly an element of truth to that um but you would think he'd wait for his day in court there didn't seem to be overwhelming evidence apart from the shoes against him. Um, he had an alibi, which his ex-partner, she's got no reason to do so, still maintains was the truth, that she was with him at the time that the the murder was carried out. So um, he, he had a strong case. In a way, Chris Lewis's suicide seems just as bizarre and inexplicable as so many other chapters of his life. As to the most famous chapter... The gunshot fired just as the Queen stepped out of her Rolls-Royce in 1981? Will we ever find out what really happened on that day and if there really was some kind of conspiracy to downplay it? Well, I guess that depends if you believe in shadowy men in trench coats visiting people and putting the hard word on them. Uh, Do we think that actually happens? Um, If it does, then yeah, there's something in it. If not... I really, I really don't know, um, but you know, I'd, I'd love to see if there are those documents. I'd love to see them. So, since we recorded this podcast, there's actually been a bit of a development in this story. Hamish McNeely has got some newly declassified material from the SIS. And the police have announced they're going to review Chris Lewis's old case file to investigate the allegations of a cover-up. Really interesting to see what comes of that. You can read all about that in Hamish's series of articles, which I really encourage you to check out. It'd be a good way to thank him for collaborating with this episode. You can find them by searching for The Snowman and the Queen at stuff.co.nz. In just a sec, I'm going to give you a sneak peek at the next episode of Black Sheep. But first, please remember to give us a rating on iTunes. Actually, why not tell a friend to listen to Black Sheep? That'd be great. Also, you can subscribe in any number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or on RNZ's app. My podcast recommendation for you this week from RNZ is Go Ahead Caller, which is a topical comedy podcast. If you like BBC's Now Show or Dead Ringers, this is the podcast for you. Next week on Black Sheep, the story of a set of brutal murders which led to fears the entire city of Auckland 
was at risk of invasion. Various bits of flesh had been cut from the bodies and they'd been generally mutilated. Uh, I mean, there was even complete dismemberment in the case of Mrs Snow. Yes, that didn't actually appear in the newspapers as such, but I did, did come across it in an account on the inquest, which said she'd had a leg um, removed from her body here. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our sound engineer was Mark Chesterman. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.